Okay, so we're continuing in our church history series, and uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the Reformation still, and two specific aspects of the Reformation, and uh, that is the Anabaptist Reformation, or what's also uh, sometimes called the Radical Reformation, um, and then the Reformed, and the the Reformed Reformation, uh, as as distinct from the Lutherans. But I wanted to take a, a second to say, why are we even taking time to study History. Why does it matter? Is this simply just an academic exercise? Does it uh, actually impact our lives at all? Is there, uh, what's the meaning behind it? And I want to suggest uh, three, three kinds of ideas that I think um, flow out of who we are. Um, and that is um, there's a Catholic reason, uh, evangelical reason, and a um, charismatic or Pentecostal reason. As Catholics, small c Catholics, we love the church. We love mother church. We love the fullness of the church. And uh, one of the early church fathers, I can't remember who said it, maybe Cyprian, he said, uh, those who claim God as their father have to claim the church as their mother. And so, uh, and Paul refers to the church as uh, Um, the Jerusalem from above, who was the mother of us all. So the church as the body of believers and the teachers and the prophets and the apostles and all these things are our mother. Um, And so I think by studying the church in its fullness, we are honoring our father and our mother. We are getting to know them better and we are paying them honor and respect uh, by seeing what they have done, what she has done uh, throughout history. As evangelicals, we love Jesus, right? Everything's about Jesus. Uh, Evangelicals love everything is about Jesus. And uh, that's true. Everything is about Jesus. And uh, the church is Jesus's body. It is the total Christ. And so uh, some people have described church history as an extension of the biography of Jesus. We get to see Jesus at work in history. So we get to know Jesus better in a sense. And then as Pentecostals or Charismatics, we are uh, Christians filled with the Holy Spirit who love the Holy Spirit. We love what the Holy Spirit has to offer us. We love the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We love um, uh, the works of the Holy Spirit. We're not ashamed of them. We take Paul's commands to not despise prophecy seriously. Um, And uh, so... As charismatics, we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit has come down on all the nations at Pentecost. And if we are serious about that, we are uh, to believe and to acknowledge that the Spirit continued its work after the apostles died. The Spirit didn't go away once the last apostle died. The Spirit was at work in history. The Spirit moved in men through the baptismal waters, through their lives, um, and caused the world to be transformed. And so uh, if we want to take the Spirit seriously, I think we have to take history seriously and see what the Spirit has been doing uh, in the redemption of the world. And then lastly, I think... uh, We are living in a time of rootlessness, of identity crisis. People don't know who they are. People are are craving identity. That's why you have these commercials for Ancestry.com. I went on Ancestry.com and I found out I was 67% whatever and, uh, you know, Irish and uh, Portuguese or, or whatever. People want to know who they are. Who are you? What is your purpose? What is your heritage? And as children of God, we know who our family is. It is the one who does the will of our Father in heaven. So Jesus says, that is my mother and my uh, brother and my sister, the one who does the will of my Father. So when we study history, we are studying our family history. These are our people. This is our identity. We say, look, these are my forefathers. This is where I came from. And there's something Uh, I think glorious in that it it taps into that desire for community and identity, which is found in Christ. And then it's the expression of that comes through in church history. So that's why we're spending time uh, uh, um, studying um, our family history, really. 
Okay, so I wanted to talk, uh, we're gonna start off, we're gonna talk a little bit about the lives of uh, some of the reformers, some of the Anabaptists, John Calvin specifically, and then I wanna get into their writings towards the end. So I'm gonna be moving pretty quickly. Um, so that's kind of the, the overall flow of what I wanna do. So uh, la last time we talked about Martin Luther, and in Germany you have this Reformation happening, and Luther rediscovering the scriptures and really kind of putting up the scriptures to what was happening in the Roman church with indulgences and really kind of the whole schema as far as justification goes. And that was kind of the centerpiece or bedrock of Luther's theology, justification by faith alone. And there is a glory to that. But out of that, you have other men, uh, particularly in Zurich, uh, Switzerland, which it wasn't Switzerland at, a, at the time. It was the Swiss cantons and um, uh, other men coming together, uh, agreeing with Luther on many things, but starting to differ from Luther and the Lutherans on various things. And these men were called uh, Reformed. And um, it was kind of a band of brothers, as Ryan Reeves would call them. I think that's a good phrase. And some of these major players were Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, which was in the Swiss cantons, kind of in the German area. Martin Bootzer in Strasbourg, which is also in the Swiss cantons, kind of in the northern area. Um, and then there were other men like Peter Martyr Vermigli, who was an Italian reformer. He goes to England uh, to work with Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer, major English reformer. Um, and uh, uh, lots of other various men, too. Uh, some of them with strange names like uh, uh, Acolampadius or... Uh, um, uh, yeah, these first generation reformers, there was many of them. So the reform tradition doesn't just have kind of one guy that everybody follows. It's a, it's a, a band of brothers. And so in 1519, it was the same year as the Leipzig debates between Luther and John Eck. Remember when John Eck famously said, uh, uh, besides you is all the church in error, right? Um, in that same year, um, Ulrich Zwingli started preaching um, from the Bible in Zurich, in, in uh, Zurich, in this Swiss town. And he just started teaching plainly from the Bible, but teaching authoritatively. And uh, Reformation started to break out there. And one of the men in that city, he, he described Zwingli's preaching like this. He said, when I heard Zwingli explain the Bible, I felt as if he were lifting me up by the hair of my head. <laughs> so you have kind of this strong preaching going on at the time. And uh, Zwingli uh, comes together with Luther um, at the, what's called the Marburg uh, uh, Colloquy, and they agree on most, on the essence of the faith, but the last thing that they couldn't agree on was uh, the Lord's Supper. Luther took a higher view of it where Jesus is locally present in the bread and the wine. Zwingli pretty much took a symbolic view of it. Although I have, and so that view predominates, particularly in America now, but um, I have read from Zwingli that he did believe in some kind of spiritual presence. And the Reformed tradition generally would acknowledge that Jesus is spiritually present his body and blood is spiritually present in the supper by faith mysteriously by the holy spirit and that's just a different way of wording it than luther which is just like jesus is the bread and wine and he doesn't really kind of uh he, he's fine with saying he's locally present there so it's kind of a very nuanced debates but it got very heated and uh zwingli and his followers uh um his his, uh, the guy who succeeds him in Zurich is uh, Heinrich Bullinger, and he, both of these men are pretty anti-Lutheran. And then, so you have about three groups here. You have Luther and the Lutherans. Luther's uh, protege would be Melanchthon, and he's actually kind of a more moderate uh, form of Luther. And then you have Zwingli and, and Bullinger, and they are opposed to the Lutherans. Another difference would be Zwingli, this is something I really, I would hold a Lutheran view of the sacraments, but I would hold a Zwinglian view of the covenants. And uh, what that transferred into was uh, Luther was very, um, he really had a low view of the law. I mean, he, he did not like to talk about the law in a good way. Zwingli was fine saying 
The law is gospel. It's good. And talking about the law in a higher way. So you have these kinds of distinct differences between these two. And then in the middle, you have Martin Bootser in Strasbourg. And Martin Bootser is more ironic. And he's kind of in the middle. He's, he's, he has sympathies with Luther. He's a Dominican uh, monk. And he, he gets converted to the Protestant faith, seeing Luther uh, debate at one of these public debates. And uh, Martin Bootser eventually becomes John Calvin's mentor and uh, really helps uh, Calvin in kind of in, in an ironic kind of way. But that, th these are kind of the three main groups that you have uh, uh, going on. Um, and one other thing, Zwingli and these guys tend to uh, be more minimalistic in the way that they would view what's permitted in worship. So these guys would restrict like no candles or instruments or things like this. You can't have that in worship because the Bible, the New Testament doesn't specifically prescribe it. These guys are, and usually that's called a, what's called a regulative principle of worship approach. Luther, on the other hand, was what's called a normative principle of worship. And that is... Uh, as long as the Bible doesn't forbid it, it's okay. So incense and candles and statues and all that stuff is fine. As long as you're not bowing down and worshiping a statue or paintings and things like this are fine um, in worship. And so that's another kind of difference. So I'm just kind of showing you the flavors going on here. However, what happens in Zurich is Zwingli starts preaching. Reformation starts happening. So much so that some of the people there really start to look at the New Testament and they look at the New Testament as this is exactly how the church should be now. Where the New Testament, like Acts of the Apostles, describing the church in her infancy, and um, they start reading all of this stuff and they start saying, this is how the church should be now. And these people are called the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists, um, they start to emerge in Zurich. The main issue of contention between everybody in the Reformation, Catholics, Lutherans, Reformed, and the Anabaptists, is baptism. And they deny infant baptism. And so in Zurich, you have the city, they have a debate. Is infant baptism biblical? Zwingli presents. The city council says infant baptism is lawful. Anybody who... Uh, denies this is going to be punished, and the Anabaptists after that hold a public rebaptism ceremony, and they do it. They rebaptize, and then they run away to uh, a neighboring village, and then the Zurich uh, uh, officials come and they chase them down, and um, they imprison the main leaders for a while, and uh, this kind of starts to. This just gets more and more intense, all the way to the point where um, the Zurich uh, starts punishing them with death. And they famously say things like, um, uh, if they want to be rebaptized, we will, we, if they want water, we will give them water. And they would, would punish them by drowning them. And um, so a lot of the Anabaptists flee from Zurich and they try to find solace in other places in, in Europe. Um, and uh, they really don't, they really can't find a lot of, uh, they really can't find a lot of um, refuge. But uh, one of the things, one of the main things that happened that really kind of made us particularly European Christians very hesitant of like radical Christianity was the Anabaptists who eventually took over a town called Munster. They set up a basically dictatorship and they, and they, so it was like this coup and they were violent about it. And the guy who set himself up as a king, he referred to himself as King David. And, um, and then let's see here. Um, yeah. And then what happens that, yeah, he, they start practicing polygamy. It's basically a communist regime because, well, they shared everything in common in the new Testament. So they're really into redistribution of wealth, very violent. Um, and then somebody hears from the Holy spirit 
that they're going to be a new Gideon and the, the bishop of that town. Um, he, he has an army and he comes against the Anabaptists. One of the Anabaptists hears from the Holy Spirit that he's a new Gideon and he goes out to destroy the wicked armies that are coming to attack and he gets absolutely annihilated. And the bishop and his army takes back Munster. And, um, but that moment in history with this incredibly radical, violent, polygamous, uh, kind of communist dictatorship in Munster really kind of affected the minds of Europeans for a pretty long time. And radical Christianity was like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> um, and they, they were very apocalyptic. They believed Jesus was coming back anytime as radicals in history usually do. Well, even, even non-radicals. But um, after this, uh, a man named Mino, uh, uh, Mino Simmons, he continues the Anabaptist tradition, but after they got, uh, after uh, the, the church wiped the floor with them at Munster, he decides to start preaching more pacifistic doctrine, and they become pacifists at that moment. And that's where the Mennonites come from. So the attempted coup doesn't work, then they start preaching nonviolence, and that's where the Mennonites come from. Um, uh, yeah, and so the Anabaptists put together uh, a confession. Um, Let's see here. It's called, yeah, they didn't believe in private property either. Um, I can't, oh, the Schleitheim Confession. And there was a, there was a phrase in there where it said, uh, civil authorities exceed their competence when they champion the word of God with a fist. And so I think that there's something good about that. They're as much flack as the Anabaptists take um, for being just very radical and, and having kind of a simplistic understanding of scripture in a lot of ways. There was an impulse there for holiness. They really did take holiness seriously. Uh, many of them did. Um, and there is, there was, there is something to be said about the difficulties of understanding how the civil magistrate is to interact with the church and what, what the civil magistrate is supposed to do and take their cues from as far as enforcing blasphemy laws or what's criminal and what's not. And so I think that the Anabaptist uh, heritage in some ways contributes to our kind of classical liberal view of viewing the world of this kind of, there is a separation of church and state, um, uh, perhaps too much so these days, but I think the Anabaptists contributed something good uh, with that in a way. Not, not, the, not the rigid principles, but kind of the direction they were swinging. I, I want to commend them in, in, in that. I think that there is something good there. Okay, so let's turn to the life of Calvin. Um, Calvin was, uh, in contrast with Luther, who, if I, I would describe Luther as a fighter, Luther was also charismatic. People liked him. He could win people over. And then with his enemies, he would really just, he would go, uh, he would really kind of go at them. And Calvin was more of a, um, uh, he was more of an academic, I would describe. I would describe him as more bookish. And he was where Luther would kind of go on flourishes in his writing sometimes, and it all wasn't necessarily clear systematic. Luther or Calvin was a clear writer, and he was an organized writer. And um, also the kind of the differences between Luther and Calvin, where Calvin uh, is is in the is in um, their portraits as they get older. You see Luther kind of growing uh, uh, fatter as, as he gets older and Calvin growing more gaunt as he gets older, just getting more and more thin and skinny. And there's a kind of severity with Calvin and a kind of, I think, joy with Luther. And uh, <laughs> so there's just an interesting kind of personality difference there. Now, Calvin's not a first-generation reformer. Ryan Reeves refers to him as kind of the younger brother of the Reformation. He's a Frenchman. He, he, he is uh, absolutely a Frenchman, and um, he's studying in, uh, in France, and he eventually goes to, um, he eventually goes to um, 
the University of Paris, and he gets a Master of Arts. He's a uh, what we what we'd call a Christian humanist. So he's interested in classical um, ideas, classical writers, Roman and Greek writers. He's interested in uh, original languages, the, or the humanists were. That's where. Protestantism, in a way, sprung out of the humanism of the Renaissance, where it's returned to the sources. And part of that, for Protestants, the medieval, the medieval Roman Catholic system, you learn Latin and you stick to the scholastic method and all these things. But the Renaissance comes along. Out of that comes humanism. Humanism is interested in returning to the sources. Christian humanists are interested in studying Greek and Hebrew and reading the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. And so a lot of Protestants come out of the Christian humanist movement. Uh, Erasmus gives us the the, the uh, 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 translation of the New Testament uh, or of the Bible from Greek. And so Calvin is one of these men. He translates uh, a work. One of his first works is a translation of Seneca, um, a Roman philosopher that actually uh, Erasmus did a preface to. And he basically just kind of put it out there in academia. And he's like, hey, if anybody wants to um, anybody wants to uh, go through this and contribute and uh, uh, kind of um, give a survey of this or I'm not exactly sure what it is, but Calvin takes up the, he takes it up and he, he basically does a commentary on this work of Seneca and he agrees, he agrees with Erasmus at points. He disagrees with him. And so you see that uh, Calvin is kind of started trying to ingratiate himself into this kind of Christian humanist movement. At some point he basically, he, 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 jumps on the Protestant. He has this kind of subtle conversion, he calls it later on in life, where he becomes uh, part of the uh, Protestant cause. One of the, uh, he was friends with a rector at um, the, at the uh, University of Paris named Nicholas Cope. And uh, he, Nicholas Cope gave a sermon that basically defended Luther's view of justification. And some people suspected that Calvin actually wrote it for him. And um, actually, at one point, Calvin has to flee France. And when they search his room, they actually find that sermon written in Calvin's handwriting in his room. So we don't really know. Either Calvin wrote it for Cope or, uh, or he wrote it, copied it from Cope or something. But people suspected that he was already kind of converting at that point. So anyway, uh, basically what happens with Calvin, I'm going to move through this quickly because I want to get to the actual writings, but what happens with Calvin? He's traveling to Strasbourg. He kind of lives his life in and out of, of exile and having to leave France because there's just a lot of tumultuous going on to, uh, between the Roman Catholic church and the Protestants. And, he publishes his institutes. I think he was 27 years old. This is this was the final version of it, um, right before he died, about the 1550s or so. 1559 was the last, the final edition. First edition was much smaller. But he writes it to the king of France. He's actually outside of France. Writes it to the king of France, and he's he's trying to defend the reasons for the Protestant Reformation to the king of France. Um, so he's writing it for his countrymen, really, is what he does. But as he continues to add to it, it's more, it more becomes kind of an introductory book for uh, pastors who want to become uh, Protestant ministers. It's really good. I would recommend it. Um, but uh, so he writes that, and that basically launches him onto the map as this kind of younger brother in the Reformation. Very clear writer, very gifted. And what he's doing is he's traveling to Strasbourg, and Geneva is kind of on the French side of the Swiss cantons. And he stays, he's, he, he stops in Geneva on the way, and there's a guy there named William Farrell. And uh, William Farrell says, basically, we need a pastor, and if you turn this down, you're turning down the will of God. And Calvin, being a God-fearing man, says, well, uh, I uh, don't want to do that. And so he convinces Calvin to stay, but Calvin was pretty reluctant. He, he turned it down, and Farrell put the, put the pressure on. Farrell was a hothead. He was a firebrand. And um, so they are there in Geneva, and there's a whole lot of politics. Geneva's going back and forth between Roman Catholic control and Protestant control of another city called Bern, who has control over it. 
But, and so they're, they're wanting to put Protestant ministers in place. Calvin and Farrell start out. They're both young men. They're wanting to institute all these reforms. And um, for one, one example, they, the, the city council runs a lot of things there. And uh, Calvin and Farrell says the pastors should have control, final authority over who is excommunicated and who is not. And people were like, eh, I'm not so sure about that. And that's one example of many kind of reforms that they wanted. Um, Calvin argued for weekly communion, um, and he never got it, even in his whole life there. Uh, they would practice it uh, quarterly throughout the year. So it's just things like this, that he's wanting to institute more moral reform, uh, like mandatory attendance to church, drunkenness could be punished, things like this. They're pushing for these things, but they're at odds with the city council. They go at this for about a year, and then on Easter Sunday in 1538, William Farrell and John Calvin excommunicate everybody who disagrees with them on their reforms, which essentially was everybody. So it's Easter Sunday, and Farrell and Calvin are there, and they're like, you guys are all excommunicated except us. And at one point, I think Calvin was blocking the pulpit to get so nobody else could preach. And so it was this really kind of comical moment that didn't go well for either one. Both Farrell and Calvin get banished from Geneva. Farrell goes somewhere else, I think where he was before. Calvin goes to Strasbourg, where Martin Bootser takes him under his wing. And, and Martin Bootser is a very ironic, mature, he's a first-generation reformer, kind of older man, takes Calvin under his wing, and he, he kind of cultivates the gifts that Calvin has. He matures them. Uh, they live together. Uh, they live close together. Bootser is a married man. He was a Dominican monk, and he got married. Um, Bootser convinces Calvin to get married. Calvin marries a former Anabaptist named Idolette. And uh, Calvin lives close to Bootser. They shared a garden together, and they would talk together and have dinners together. And what happens is... Basically, the uh, former Roman Catholic uh, rulers try to get Geneva to, to, get, uh, to come back under Roman Catholic rule. And there's a bishop named Sadoletto, and he writes this letter to Geneva. So a lot of time has gone by. I'm actually not quite sure how much time has gone by. <laughs> but he writes this letter to Geneva, and he basically says, look, we realize you guys are wanting reform, but why don't you guys just try to reform within the Roman Catholic Church? Why don't you come back to us? All is forgiven. We'll overlook what you guys have done and all of this. And, what, and, and at that time, Geneva really didn't have anybody with the capabilities to respond, and they didn't really know exactly what to do. And Bootser, at this point, he thinks Calvin is mature enough and ready to kind of give it another go. And he, go, he contacts Geneva and he says, you know what? I think Calvin should be the guy to write back to Saletto for you guys. And uh, Calvin, I think, kind of turns it. He's like, I don't want to do that. But he's won over. Calvin writes back to Saletto. And it's a really great response on basically the nature of the church. What is the church? Is it the Roman Catholic institution or is it the communion of believers in Christ? Um, and it really revolves around that issue. Answers him beautifully, very winsomely. Um, oh, and also when Calvin was in Geneva before he got kicked out, he actually, um, Bootser had written him and uh, or Bootser had done something, I can't remember, and Calvin criticizes Bootser really harshly. And then Bootser responds without defending himself, without lighting into Calvin. He's just very calm, and I can't even, but just very winsome. And I think Calvin kind of felt a little, it, that was kind of the way of Bootser, and one, one Calvin over to kind of like, uh, you know, continue, continue with your fire, but direct it in better ways and use more wisdom. So anyway, Calvin writes back and he's, he also gets invited back to be the pastor at Geneva. And he comes back and uh, Calvin, he tells them, I don't want fanfare. They, 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 the people, a lot of people in the city started to like what he had done with the Satelletto thing. And 
the story goes, Calvin comes back. He doesn't, he doesn't want the red carpet rolled out or anything like that. He comes back, and the, the story is he, he comes up to the pulpit on, the, on Sunday, and he opens up the Bible to where the last sermon that he preached, and he just keeps preaching from where he left off. Um, so, uh, and then that's where Calvin was for the rest of his life, and he was incredibly industrious, continued to uh, labor in word and doctrine, continued to implement a lot of reforms in the city, um, and Geneva really became kind of a refuge for a lot of Protestants. A lot of Protestants are being exiled. John Calvin is an exile. He, he is a man exiled from his country. Um, he is a man uh, who, um, yeah, so... Um, a lot of Protestants found um, refuge there, including John Knox, who became the reformer of Scotland, where kind of moderate, where Presbyterianism kind of comes, comes from. And John Knox, he described Geneva as the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on earth since the days of the apostles. <laughs> so it was a it was a big it was a big deal. Uh, however, it wasn't a safe haven for everybody. You have men people who are like radically anti-Calvinistic, um, they will always bring up a man named Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus was a heretic. He was a Pelagian, anti-Trinitarian modalist, I think. Uh, so he, he taught that we don't have original sin. He taught that we, he taught that Jesus is not fully God, things like this, which were criminal offenses in the Middle Ages, and he was a wanted man. He was a criminal in all of Europe, and he, was, he escaped from a Roman Catholic prison. He's on the run. He's writing Calvin back and forth about doctrinal things. Calvin warns Servetus, don't come here, because the laws in place are, if you come here and you start preaching this stuff, you are going to be put to death. And Calvin is like, don't come here. We've, we disagree. This is not going to go well for you if you come here. He went there anyway. The city council decided to put him to death because he starts preaching anti-Trinitarian stuff. And um, Calvin actually petitioned the city council to, um, to put him to death by hanging, which was considered more merciful than death by uh, fire, which was what the city council decided to do. So it, it's a different time, you know, and we don't exercise, I think, historical charity enough. And what that gets translated to with a lot of people who are just rabidly anti-Calvinist who have never read Calvin in their life, they just say, John Calvin killed Michael Servetus because he was the king of Geneva. And he says, Michael Servetus must die now. It's like, that is not how it went down. So um, this, is, uh, this is something to consider with just kind of different era, something that went down with Calvin. Now, I want to say a, a few things um, about the effect of Calvin. Calvin on, on our politics. Calvin taught the sovereignty of God. If we, if we would be overly simplistic with Luther, it's justification by faith alone. Overly simplistic with Calvin, it's the sovereignty of God. Now, Calvin did not advocate for overturning governments in revolution. He was very much opposed to that. He would say, you, you owe submission to your king just like a wife owes submission to her husband. You do not you, you do not act in rebellion because rebellion is witchcraft. Very strong language. However, his insistence on the sovereignty of God over all things spreads like wildfire among the Reformed, and almost everywhere it goes, you see the Reformed throwing off certain kinds of political powers over them. John Knox goes to Scotland, throws off the powers of England over him. They, they form a different form of government uh, with that. You have the French Huguenots in France. The Huguenots are the French Calvinists. They are at odds with the king, and they lose there. They, you have the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, uh, which, where, where the king just killed tons of French Huguenots, and it just essentially becomes Catholic after that. But, uh, and then you have in the Netherlands, the Dutch Republic, Calvinism goes there. Uh, the Reformed faith goes there, and they start being in opposition to the Spanish ruling over them. The Spanish had rule over them, and they threw that off. 
Uh, many of the Puritans in England, the Puritans were just Anglicans, they were English reformers, and they were at odds with the state-run church, and they eventually, some of them just kind of say, uh, I'm done with this, and what do they do? They go to America, and they have more religious freedom, in the, and so it's kind of baked into our beginnings, and where does that come from? I would argue it comes from Calvin. Some people have described Calvin as kind of the father of our constitution, our way of government in a lot of ways. And um, I, I've heard that the most of the men fighting the revolution, the American War for Independence, let's not call it a revolution, the American War for Independence, were mostly Presbyterians, and their battle cry was, no king but Jesus, right? <laughs> so this idea of God being sovereign over everything, I think, has a kind of political manifestations that uh, came out uh, in this time period and, and after. And we'll talk a little bit more about, um, and what, the, the, just as a real quick, uh, John Knox is, he, there's, you have a, a female uh, queen in England that John Knox is opposed to. I think that this is what, we'll talk about this in another, um, in another episode, uh, but he, he writes a treatise called Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. <laughs> <laughs> and John Knox, he, he was, I don't know if he wrote it when he was in Geneva, but he's, he, ba the basic idea of it is, uh, women should not be allowed to be, uh, rulers in the civil realm. And he makes appeals to scripture for this. And he runs it by Calvin and Calvin is like, uh, I don't think I agree with that. Uh, there's clearly women who are civil magistrates in scripture. Esther is queen. Uh, Deborah, things like this. And so, so Calvin does not agree with Knox on this. And Knox is clearly trying to do He's There's political things in play that he's trying to get at. And Calvin's like, eh, I don't, I'm not going to go there. However, that gets associated with Calvin in England. And so the female queen uh, really starts to despise Calvin. And so Calvinism gets a really bad name in England. And so this is, this kind of opens up the debate, Calvin versus the Calvinist. This, I feel like, has just gone all through history of what Calvin taught and then Calvinism, which is usually some, it's something weird like that. So anyway, uh, I think I may have gotten some of the things wrong in that story, but I think that there's, I think that that's basically the gist of some of the more anti-Calvinist polemic that eventually happened in Reformed Anglicanism in the Reformed movement in England, which was a more moderated uh, Reformation, but we'll we'll do that another time. Okay, so I want to just I want to go through a couple of the writings to give you an idea of of John Calvin as a man, um, and also some of the other reformers. You know, these are our forefathers. Let's kind of dive in and see them. Also, I wanted to I wanted to um, I wanted to read, this is what Calvin said. I think this is, this is good for, for you ladies watching. Calvin was a gift to the church and he was able to labor in word and doctrine and his wife helped him in that. This, uh, Calvin's wife, Idolette, died in 1549. Calvin died in 1563, maybe, something like that. Um, but this is what he said. He said, I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life who, if our lot had been harsher, would have been not only the willing sharer of exile and poverty, but even death. While she lived, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. I think that that's just an amazing statement to say about your wife, to have that kind of a statement. It makes Idolette seem like that was a good woman. And look at how, look at how industrious Calvin was. Um, so anyway, uh, I am not endorsing everything that Calvin taught, um, but I think that he was a gift to the church, as were most of the reformers. Uh, the reformers were wrong on divorce and remarriage, but they were right on a lot of things. Um, and they, and so you read their works and you can benefit from them. Let's take a look at Cal what Calvin says about um, predestination and election, right? You think Calvinism, 
predestination and election. This is from his institutes. And he start, this is him talking about predestination and election. We shall never feel persuaded as we ought that our salvation flows from the free mercy of God as its fountain until we are made acquainted with his eternal election, the grace of God being illustrated by the contrast. For example, that he does not adopt all promiscuously to the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he denies to others. He's saying God has adopted some to salvation and he's passed over others. This is clear in the fact that some people believe and others do not. It is plain how great greatly ignorance of this principle detracts from the glory of God and impairs true humility, but though thus necessary to be known. Paul declares that it cannot be known unless God, throwing works entirely out of view, elect those whom he has predestined. And then Romans eleven six. He's quoting Paul. He says his words are even so then at this present time. Also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul talking about the faithful remnant of Jews who believe in Jesus. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So, I mean, he's quoting Paul there, kind of the saying, you are elect not because of anything you've done, not because of your work, because of your grace. And, and Calvin is tying this in to God's uh, sovereign election and predestination. And he goes on to say this, talking more explicitly about the doctrine of predestination. He says, first then, when they inquire into predestination, let them remember that they are penetrating into the recesses of divine wisdom, where he who rushes forward securely and confidently, instead of satisfying his curiosity, will enter into an inextricable labyrinth. For it is not right that man should with impunity pry into the things which the Lord has been pleased to conceal within himself and scan the sublime eternal wisdom which it, which it is his pleasure that we should not apprehend but adore, that therein also his perfections may appear. Those secrets of his will which he has seen it meet to manifest are revealed in his word, revealed insofar as he knew to be conducive to our interest in welfare. I guess that doesn't seem very clear, and perhaps the translations kind of make it not as clear, but he's basically saying um, God has revealed things about his predestination in his word. Um, and he also kind of gives a caution to uh, go knowing the things that God has not revealed in his word. He's basically saying mystery is okay. We're not going to figure all this out. But what God has revealed to us, we should, we should inquire into. We should know because it's in his word. He goes on to say, um, he quotes Augustine, by the way, then uh, in and that's another thing. Calvin is constantly quote, and the reformers are constantly quoting the early church fathers. And so the a common Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox polemic is that, is that the reformers just started a new church and it just introduced new ideas that had never been around before. But you look at how they argue, you read their stuff. Calvin makes an assertion, backs it up with scripture, backs it up with the early church fathers, and it's everywhere in his writings. But he goes on to say this. He says, if we give due weight to the consideration that the word of the Lord is the only way which we can conduct us to the investigation of whatever it is lawful for us to hold with regard to him, is the only light which can enable us to discern what we ought to see with regard to him, it will curb and restrain all presumption. He's basically saying the word of God is our is the gate that we can explore within. And it doesn't give us ability to know God's predestination in full, but we do know some of what's going on. For it will show us that the moment we go beyond the bounds of the word, we are out of the course in darkness and must every now and then stumble, go astray and fall. Let it therefore be our first principle that to desire any other knowledge of predestination than that which is expounded by the word of God is no less infatuated than to walk where there is no path or to seek light in darkness. Let us not be ashamed to be ignorant in a matter in which ignorance is learning. 
Rather, let us willingly abstain from the search after knowledge, to which it is both foolish as well as perilous and even fatal to aspire. If an unrestrained imagination urges us, the proper course is to oppose it with these words. It is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory. There is good reason to dread a presumption which can only plunge us headlong into ruin. And then he says, there are others who, when they, and so he, he's, he's basically saying, uh, the, we, can, we can discover what God has to say about predestination. The word is our ground for that. He says, there are others who, when they would cure this disease, recommend that the subject of predestination should scarcely have ever be mentioned and tell us to shun every question concerning it as we would a rock. Although their moderation is justly commendable in thinking that such mysteries should be treated with moderation, yet because they keep too far within the proper measure, they have little influence over the human mind, which does not readily allow itself to be curbed. Therefore, in order to keep the legitimate course in this matter, we must return to the word of God in which we are furnished with the right rule of understanding. For scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which as nothing useful and necessary to be known has been omitted. So nothing is taught but what it is of importance to know. So it's interesting because Calvin is, uh, he is um, somebody who wants to be brief and terse in his writing. But even when I'm reading him, I'm thinking this is way too prolonged a sentence for even our sensibilities. But at the time, he's writing as somebody who is deliberately trying to write short and clear and concisely. So, but what he says there is there's people who inquire way too much into predestination, things that we don't know. And the word keeps us from from going that far. And then he says, on the other end, there's people who just say, eh, we can't know anything about it. Let's not even touch it. And he's saying, that's not good either because there are things about predestination in the word of God and we should know them and it's for our benefit. So I think that that's really good. I just remember reading this several years ago and thinking, man, Calvin is super reasonable here. <laughs> he's, he's not like some Calvinist that you might, uh, that you might meet on the internet. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's, uh, let's keep moving quickly here. Um, let's move on to, this is a really great book on Calvin's uh, Doctrine of the Lord's Supper from Keith Matheson. Really good, kind of gives a history of, of uh, the views of the Lord's Supper throughout church history, and then it gives a really good explanation of uh, Calvin, and then it even has some really good kind of uh, personal stuff from him at the end. But um, let me read some of the things here. Calvin says, none but the utterly irreligious deny that Christ is the bread of life by which believers are nourished into eternal life. But there is no unanimity as to the mode of partaking of him. So he's saying everybody believes that Jesus is the bread of life, but there's disagreement over what that means to partake of the bread of life. For there are some who define the eating of Christ's flesh and the drinking of blood as, in one word, nothing but to believe in Christ. So there's some who say, you believe in Jesus, that's what it means to eat the bread, uh, or to eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood. And then he says, but it seems to me that Christ meant to teach something more definite and more elevated in that noble discourse in which he commends to us the eating of his flesh, which is in John 6. He says, it is that we are quickened by the true partaking of him, and he has therefore designated this partaking by words eating and drinking in order that no one should think that the life that we receive from him is received by mere knowledge. I think this is a good instinct. He's, he's saying our life from Christ is not received by simply just knowing things. He says, we admit indeed, meanwhile, that this is no other eating than that of faith. So he's saying there is a sense in which our belief is eating. And the early church fathers would say both of these things. Uh, Augustine would talk in these terms that eating, eating, uh, that our faith is a kind of eating. Or even when you eat the Lord's Supper, there's a certain kind of faith aspect involved. But, but Calvin is pushing against the people who say that that's the only thing that's involved is faith as no other can be imagined. But here is the difference between my words and theirs. For them to eat is only to believe. I say that we eat Christ's flesh in believing. So he affirms that because it is made ours by faith. 
and that this eating is the result and effect of faith. So because we believe, we are going to partake of the meal. Or if you want it uh, said more clearly, for them eating is faith. For me, it seems rather to follow from faith. In this way, the Lord intended by calling himself the bread of life to teach not only that salvation for us rests on faith in his death and resurrection, but also that by true partaking of him, his life passes into us and is made ours just as bread when taken as food imparts vigor to our bodies. So there's something in taking bread and wine into us, which actually gives us life in a biological sense. And that symbolizes Jesus giving us uh, vigor and life when we believe in him and obey as well. So uh, he goes on to say, Uh, The sharing of the Lord's body, which I maintain, is offered to us in the supper, demands neither a local presence. So he's pushing against he's pushing against the Roman Catholics and Lutherans here, nor the descent of Christ, nor an infinite extension of his body, nor anything of that sort. Lutherans would have a doctrine of the ubiquity of Jesus's body. And basically the reforms say, no, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the father and his body is communicated to us through faith by the Holy Spirit. And Lutherans say, no, his physical attributes have divine attributes and his body can be ubiquitous everywhere, including locally in the Lord's Supper. So these are like really nuanced theological terms, but these are the difference between these two uh, traditions. And he says, so he says that kind of ubiquity of the body is not necessary. He says, for in view of the fact that the supper is a heavenly act, there is nothing absurd about saying that Christ remains in heaven and is yet received by us. For the way in which he imparts himself to us is by the secret power of the Holy Spirit. I would affirm that a power which is able not only to bring together, but also to join together things which are separated by distance and by a great distance as that. So Calvin in his writing does put a huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. And in his doctrine of the Lord's Supper, he basically says that the Holy Spirit through faith unites us with Christ in, in, the, in the Holy Supper. Um, he says, but it is declared in my writings more than a hundred times that so far am I from rejecting the term substance that I in, uh, that I candidly and readily declare that by the incomprehensible agency of the spirit, spiritual life is infused into us from the substance of the flesh of Christ. I also constantly admit that we are substantially fed on, uh, the flesh and blood of Christ. I just, I share these quotes because these are very high views of the supper that have essentially been lost even in a lot of reformed churches that have simply really kind of taken just kind of a naked symbolism idea. Um, And then this is the last one here and probably the most important. Calvin says this, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. So he basically says, This is a mystery. It's very lofty. Words can barely describe the mode of what's going on there. And I think that that's true. We don't really know exactly how this is going on, but we do believe it. We do believe that it is the body and the blood. We don't necessarily know how it happens, but it does. We're getting close to the end here. So um, I was going to read some stuff about Bootser. Bootser had some really good. There's some stuff. This is uh, Beyond Calvin put out by the Davenant uh, Institute. There's a good essay in here on Bootser, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, I Let's go ahead and read. This is an awesome book by Peter Lilback. It's called The Binding of God, Calvin's Role in the Development of Covenant Theology. Super awesome. Uh, let's read a couple of these, and then we'll end uh, by just reading one, one thing from Calvin's, uh, on Calvin's preaching. Okay. Uh, this is this is Zwingli. So this is this is the covenant theology of the reformers that I'm hugely a fan of. Therefore, like Christ himself and Paul and James, we warn them that they must show forth their faith by their acts. If they have faith for faith without works is dead. The good tree brings forth good fruit. The children of Abraham do the works of Abraham in Christ. Nothing avails but faith, which works by love right? This is nothing avails which faith alone. Zwingli is saying nothing avails but faith which works by love. He's bringing faith and works together here. This would be a different, this would be a different way of expressing it than the Lutherans, which I'm a huge fan of. 
He says, hence we preach the law as well as grace. For from the law, the faithful and elect learn the will of God and the wicked are also affrighted so that they either serve their neighbor through fear or reveal all their desperation and unbelief. So he's basically saying law, gospel, it's all good. We preach it all. And then he says, he says this to summarize, I call everything gospel, which God reveals to men and demands from men. For whenever God reveals his will to men, those who love God rejoice. And thus it is for them a sure and good message. And for their sake, I call it gospel. And I prefer to call it gospel rather than law, for it is more fitting to name it after the believer than the unbeliever, because the law is given for the unrighteous man. This also puts an end to the dispute about law and gospel. So Zwingli's saying, like, look, it's all gospel. People who the believer loves the law. They love that it, it instructs them in the word. This is not a way that Luther would talk. Luther was allergic to the law. And there's truth in that. Paul, Paul has you know, moments where it's like the law, the law condemns us. The law does condemn us. It does show us our insufficiency. It cannot save. Right. So, uh, but I like that the reformer, the reform side are more, uh, warm to it. Um, this is also, uh, oh no, this is, this is Ocalympadius another reformer. He says, but if you ask, is it not the case that even the saints who lived before Christ belong to the church, such as Abram, Abraham, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Moses, and others? Certainly they belonged for indeed from these, the church began to be built. So the reformers, the, the reformed uh, guys had a more unified view of the church, a covenantal view. He's saying, weren't these guys part of the church? And he's saying, yes, this, these guys began to build the church. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of this. Um, Bullinger, this would be Zwingli's predecessor um, or his protege, the guy, the guy that he passed off his mantle to. Uh, Zwingli, actually, he died in battle. He died fighting Catholics. And when, when news got to uh, Luther of his death, Luther said, uh, uh, such, go, such is the way of all heretics or some, something really cold like that because they were enemies. And he just said, eh, well, he was a heretic, so of course he's dead. So it kind of shows you kind of the animosity there. But Bollinger, his, his protege, he, uh, he says, the New Testament is nothing other than the interpretation of the old. Um, this is Zwingli. Therefore, the same covenant which he entered into with Israel, he has in these later days entered into with us, that we may be one people with them, one church, and may also have one covenant. And what Zwingli does in his battles with the Anabaptists is he, he develops this covenantal view of kind of the continuity of the church. And he, and he really kind of starts saying like, look, uh, their children were the people of God and it was signified by circumcision and our children are also people of God and it's signified by baptism. He used that. You start to see that used as arguments against the Anabaptists and he kind of says there's all kinds of things like this in the Old Testament. Old Testament, the Old Testament church celebrated Passover. Our Passover is the Lord's Supper. So um, Zwingli's really doing a lot of these things. All right, let's wrap it up here. Um, let's just talk really quickly, uh, Calvin and Covenant. Um, Calvin really talked a lot about a couple of things that are super scandalous in the Reformed world now, and it's often the, called the Federal Vision Controversy, and it's two things. Calvin acknowledged certain aspects of the conditionality of the covenant, that there are certain requirements on our part part of the covenant, and then also the reality of apostasy. So let's see what he has to say about some of these things. He's commenting on Hosea. He says that they, that they had acted uh, perfidiously with God, for they had violated his covenant. We must bear in mind what I have said before of the mutual faith, faith which God stipulates with us when he binds himself to us. 
God then covenants with us on this condition that he will be our father and husband, but he requires from us such obedience as a son ought to render to his father. He requires from us that chastity which a wife owes to her husband. Oh, you're denying justification by faith alone. That's really kind of the refrain that you have when people start talking about obedience. Calvin goes on. He says... But when the promises of the gospel are substituted, which proclaim, eh, I'm not going to talk about that one. He basically just says that because we are freely forgiven in, in Christ, that our works become uh, pleasing to God, that we can actually please God with what we do. And some of these people, kind of a hyper Calvinistic, you know, you are, you are just disgusting filth and you can never please God. Nothing you ever do is any, all our works are filthy rags. And Calvin's like, no, we can obey the law and we can be pleasing to God. It's not that that is the means of our remission of sins. We aren't saving ourselves, but those things do please God. Um, let me keep going here. Let's see. Yeah. So, so this is the, this is something that's been really big for me. What Calvin does is he makes a distinction between election and covenant. Covenant and election are not the same. God has a certain elect that only God knows. He's elected them from beginning of time. And then there are some, so there, these people are decretally elect. They'll persevere to the end, but we don't know who those people are, but there are covenantally elect people that God elects to his covenant and he pulls them out of Egypt. And those people sometimes don't persevere to the end. Like Israel, sometimes they die in the wilderness and they don't enter the promised land. And Calvin makes this distinction between the elect and the covenantal, the decretally elect, covenantally elect. And uh, he says this, and it was necessary to state this distinctly. Let's see, who is he talking about here? He's commenting on Joel. Less hypocrites, as they usually do, abuse what has been said. They who occupy high stations in the church and pass in name for the children of God swell, we know with great confidence and boldly trifle with God, for they think that he is bound to them when they make a show either of external badges or of profession in which they glory before men. They think this display sufficient. And then this is commentary on Jeremiah. We have indeed seen elsewhere that the Jews were so fascinated as to think that God was bound to them, and at the same time they allowed themselves every liberty in sinning under the pretense that God had promised that the kingdom of David would remain as long as the sun and the moon continued in the heavens. But they did not consider that there was a mutual compact in God's covenant, for he required them to be faithful on their part. Nor did they consider that many were Abraham's children, according to the flesh, who were not his lawful children before God. So he's, he's talking about the Jews' presumptuousness, that they had these kind of objective indicators that they were the people of God. And he's saying, but they didn't even consider that some of Abraham's children were not uh, uh, men of God, even though they were, they were uh, uh, externally elected to the covenant. Calvin goes on, he says, he says this, God is merciful only to those who keep his covenant. <laughs> God just loves everybody. doesn't matter what you do. We are accepting of all lifestyles here. Uh, yeah, Calvin wouldn't say that. And then he says this. This is the last thing I'll say. He says, you see then that the goodness which God shows us in his word must not make us slothful and careless, but rather be a, sir to, a spur to incite us to come to him, that his holy covenant be not broken on our part through our default. Does that sound like once saved, always saved to you? Breaking the covenant? <clears throat> He says, let us also note that the threatenings of God are very necessary for us. For we see how great pride and rebelliousness is in all of us. So much so, though we be not rebellious of set purpose to set our God at naught and to cast off his yoke. Yet we are so bleary eyed that we think not on him and the enticements of the world seduce us in such wise that we do not receive any warning that God gives us. If he calls us by gentleness, he can get nothing at our hands. 
Therefore, he is compelled to use threatenings. God, perceiving that gentle language is not enough to move us, uses threatenings and says, Take heed if you think to cast away my word, and yet to remain unpunished, you deceive yourselves. I must double your punishment, and my vengeance must fall more horribly upon you. Therefore, being stirred up by the goodness and gentleness of God, whereof I have spoken even now, let us also spur ourselves on by his threatenings. We may well dedicate ourselves unto God and be held in his fear. If on the one side his promises be in force with us, and again, if on the other side we give ear to his threatenings. So Calvin is not afraid of God's harsh language with us. He says that it is necessary because gentle language doesn't move anybody, but threatenings do. And the fear of God moves men. And so uh, I was going to share one more quote from here, but basically Calvin, um, this is another good book, Calvin's Preaching. And uh, if you're a pastor, this is a good book that kind of goes over kind of Calvin's uh, a preaching method and just kind of the philosophy of preaching. But in it, there's a, there's a, a quote from Calvin that essentially just says, look, the word of God is our standard and we are to accept everything in it without, uh, uh, with full embrace, even when it doesn't make sense to our reason. And we are to accept it. We are to subordinate our reason to faithful adherence to scripture. And so anyway, that was, uh, uh, That was kind of longer than what I thought, but I think that these things are good for us to kind of dispel um, slanderous and ill-informed conceptions of our forefathers in the faith, like Calvin and the Reformed, who were not perfect uh, and did mess up some things that we're having to fight. But that's the way that God works. He doesn't let his people take all of the land at once. He leaves certain land for the children to fight for. And that's what we have now, even though those who claim the reformed faith are not fighting the battles that actually matter. They're only fighting these old battles that have already been won. And the battles that matter now have to do with divorce and remarriage, which they don't want to touch. And so in that sense, we are in the spirit of the reformation more so than they are. (laughs) All right.